Brittany, and I work, I kind of have two jobs. I kind of laugh and say that I have one job that I get paid for and another job I get trafficked for. Um, I work um, for money so that I can eat and pay my rent and pay my bills at a nurse practitioner clinic. I have a master's degree in public health, and at our clinic, we don't turn anyone away. So they see the practitioner, and then they come to me. And so I help them get prescriptions filled. I help them um, get housing if they're homeless. If they're disabled, I help them um, file for disability. So I kind of function as a health social worker and a health educator. It just depends on the day. I'm not a social worker, but I I play one um, fairly often in the office. Um, I also have another job. I work as the state director for Kentucky for a group called the Not For Sale Campaign. And so I direct trafficking initiatives throughout um, this state. And I don't get paid for that job. So um, I love trafficking. I'm interested in it. It's a passion that I really um, for sure feel called to. But I haven't been able to find a paid position within that. So I kind of function as both roles. And I've been really blessed in that the job that I have I get paid for often allows me to see trafficking victims. A number of the victims that I've seen in our clinic are coming in as homeless people. Um, My office is directly across the street from a strip club. I've seen a number of those girls come through. They don't have insurance. So um, that's kind of where I come from. It's my background. And to give you a little bit an overview of what we're going to do, I'm working on developing hospital protocols for clinics and hospitals in the state of Kentucky so that if you go to a hospital and you are potentially a trafficking victim, there are the same protocols in place for you that there are for domestic abuse victims, for rape victims, or for child abuse victims, because everyone kind of knows that inclination that something's wrong, something's not right here, but if it's potentially trafficking, nobody knows first off how to identify them, and nobody knows what you do then. Most of the victims in Kentucky have been to a healthcare provider, but they were never identified. And so the the problem is, what do you do once you find them? And so that's hopefully what you'll come away with. Um, Just by show of hands, how many of you have attended the other sessions on trafficking? Okay, great. Um, So I'm going to spend just a quick time for those, a quick amount of time for those of you who haven't been to those sessions, giving you an overview of what human trafficking is and what it isn't, because there is a distinction of what is um, child abuse and what's child sex trafficking. When is it prostitution and when is it sex trafficking? So just giving you an overview of what that is. Um, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time on identification and assessment and then what you do next. So hopefully that works. Um, A little bit about my story and how I kind of got into human trafficking. I often laugh and say that human trafficking found me. Um, When I was 14, I was in a public high school in Kentucky, in western Kentucky. And I went to school, and again, it's a public high school. And we had a prayer group that would meet um, for a couple minutes right before classes. And in that prayer group, there was about 30 students. And on December 1st, 1997, we were in that prayer group. And somebody walked up behind me, and I didn't really want to turn around and see who it was because we were praying. We were holding hands and, um, you know, we were praying. So I just figured it was somebody who was late who had walked up that really, you know, maybe I just didn't want to break hands and turn around. So I kind of just stayed there and prayed. And as soon as we said amen... I heard a really loud noise, and everyone around me started falling and running, and the boy behind me had a gun, and he was shooting, and it was actually one of our nation's first school shootings. And a dear friend of mine, um, her name was Nicole Hadley, she was standing just a few feet in front of me, was shot and killed. When he was done, eight students had been shot, three were killed, and one was paralyzed from the waist down. And throughout that whole time, I was staring down the barrel of a gun, and every time he went in my direction, he missed. 
And so for some reason, I was given a second chance. And I didn't know why. I loved God. I believed in him. But after that, I really didn't want a lot to do with him. I just wanted to love him and and go to heaven. And if I could do that, I was good. And so my goal was to get out of that town, get out of that city, and just start over. So I went to college in Kentucky. And I decided I didn't want to go home for the summer. It was just, I had fun where I was at. I had started over. I had a new life. I didn't want to go home. So I decided I would do missions. And I signed up for what I thought was a mission trip in eastern Kentucky, where I would go and work with people in eastern Kentucky. And so I did my interview, and I noticed that they were asking me some really strange questions, but it didn't really dawn on me that maybe I was in the wrong room until I got a letter in the mail that said, congratulations, you're going to Cambodia. So, so I was like, whoops, how'd that happen? Um, so, you know, I was like, how do you explain that to your mom? I didn't mean to do it, you know. So I decided that the best way to tell her would be to take her to dinner, or I guess she would take me because she wouldn't kill me in public. So I um, I took I took my parents to dinner, or they, they paid for it. I just took them. And um, I told them, I was like, I'm going to Cambodia. And so I went to Cambodia working in water purification and working working in health education, um, doing those two things. And I was in the capital city and got on a moto taxi, and the guy looked at me, and he said, how old? And I thought he was asking me how old I was. So at the time, I was 22, and I was like, I'm 22. And he's like, that's old. I was like, no, it's not. You know, what's wrong with you? Like, you're older than me. And so in my limited Khmer and in his limited English, we started having this conversation about, how old is old? And gener- and all of a sudden, my interpreter came over to me, and she's like, Brittany, do you not get what he's asking you? I was like, no. And she's like, he's asking you how old of a child you're here to have sex with. What? <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe it. I had never heard of that. I had never heard of trafficking. I had no idea. And apparently, in this particular area in Cambodia, the, the number one reason that Westerners, Americans, are there are to have sex with children. And, and that's why he thought I was there. And I had no clue. So I went back home after that summer and started researching trafficking. I went back to Cambodia four more times and was able to take other students who were going on purpose, who knew where they were going, um, and made sure everyone one of my team knew they weren't going to eastern Kentucky. We were going to Cambodia. And so um, went back and came back home and realized human trafficking just doesn't happen in Cambodia. It happens here. It's in your own backyard. And so um, I started researching everything I could get my hands on. Any, I would Google everything. Like, that's scholarly, Google. So I did it. And I found out all these different names of people. Um, but there was a huge lack of resources in healthcare. And so anyone who had their name attached to anything with human trafficking in healthcare, I would call them, email them, talk to them, and just kind of figure out what, what I should do. So I, I contacted Not For Sale and was like, how can I get involved? And it, it, Not For Sale, you don't ever ask a question because you're that person. So I, they said, well, why don't you be the director for the state? Okay, sure. Um, and so a couple years later, I'm here. And so um, what I want to do for you again is just give you a brief overview of what trafficking is, since many of you know, and then spend the majority of the time giving you concrete tools, concrete steps, so that when you leave here, you have an idea of what to do if you find a victim wherever you're at. Um, human trafficking, if somebody asks you a simple definition, modern-day slavery. There's a much more complicated definition on a book called the TIP, the Trafficking in Persons Report. It's a long paragraph. I won't read it to you. You can Google, as everyone does, Trafficking in Persons 2010 and get this amazing book. It's huge. It's free. It's on a PDF format. 
It gives you a great overview of trafficking in, in a lot of different countries, but also specific definitions. But the easiest to remember, trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery. Um, it's any form of extreme exploitation by one human being on another for something of commercial value. So it doesn't have to be money. Um, I've had patients that have come in to see a practitioner, they've come to see me, and they're exchanging sex for rent. You know, something like that. There's not money changing hands, but there's something of commercial value. Um, drugs. Oftentimes, um, in Kentucky, we have a few cases right now where children are being trafficked by their parents for drugs. Their parents are drug addicts. They're addicted to different things, and the way they get their drugs is to prostitute their children. That's a, that happens, I know, here in Kentucky, and I'm sure in other states as well. Um, Kentucky, especially eastern Kentucky, is number one in the nation for prescription drug abuse. So I'm sure... Um, I've not researched Eastern Kentucky, but I'm sure that kind of thing is going on there. I know it's gone on in Louisville as well as in Lexington. The major forms of trafficking, again, which are found in the TIP report, are what's listed. Forced labor, sex trafficking, bonded labor, um, involuntary domestic servitude. That has been one that's really common here in Kentucky that we've seen, a common form of labor trafficking where somebody's brought in and forced to work as a, maybe a nanny for children or as a housemaid, but they're doing some kind of domestic service in a home, and they're not getting paid. Oftentimes, if it's a female, she's also exploited sexually as well as labor um, for the labor services she's providing. Forced child labor is another form. Um, you think Nike sweatshops, that's kind of what people think when they think of child labor. Um, there's a number of ways. Children are often trafficked in forced labor in the cocoa industry. Seventy um, percent of the world's chocolate is in the Ivory Coast, and a number of the people that harvest that cocoa are children. So you've got forced child labor, child soldiers, which are children who are taken um, and forced to fight in um, one, one you've probably heard of is Invisible Children. That's a really common um, NGO that works with child soldiers, but they're forced to fight. That is um, a form of human trafficking, not necessarily because they're a child soldier, but many of the children are forced to carry the weapons. The girls are used as sex slaves. So child soldiering is its own category, but it can be have elements of trafficking inside of it. Um, you also have child sex trafficking. And so when you look at the TIP report, you will see a big explanation for each of those categories. But those are the major forms. Um, sex trafficking, those three words in orange, those are your three most important words, force, fraud, or coercion. If it's an adult, you have to prove that force, fraud, or coercion occurred in order for it to be sex trafficking. So it's any commercial sex act that's induced by force, fraud, or coercion. But if it's a minor, you don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. If a minor is involved in a commercial sex act, they're a victim of sex trafficking. In Lexington, not too long ago, we had a 14-year-old girl who was working in a strip club across the street from my office. We don't have to prove force, fraud, and coercion. She's a victim of child sex trafficking because of her age. Um, some of the places that you can find victims, especially here in the States, um, massage parlors, hair and nail salons, strip clubs, and escort services. The girl I just mentioned previously was in a strip club. Um, I don't know about this particular place, but I was flying um, home back to Lexington, or I'm sorry, back to Cincinnati, and I was driving to Lexington, and I got off on I-75 on a truck stop, and right next to the truck stop was a massage parlor that was opened, and it didn't dawn on me that that was weird until it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't know about you, but it, I don't get a massage, but if I do, it's probably not at 2 a.m. You know, who, who does that? There's something going on, and so you kind of need to look beneath the surface when you see some of those things. Nail salons. There's a nail salon in, in Lexington and one in Louisville um, that's open at 3 a.m., 
who gets a pedicure at 3 a.m.? Not many people. Um, so, so you can kind of get a feel for where some of these people might be. Um, if you can look beneath the surface, find out what their hours are. When do they work? Where do they sleep? You know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But those are um, some of the places we have found victims here. Um, labor trafficking, again, you want to look for forced fraud or coercion. So it's the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person for labor through the use of forced fraud and coercion. A number of these victims, um, we've worked with some victims who have been found in hotels. They're the janitorial staff at the hotel. Um, they are, again, hotel services, agriculture farms. A number of victims who are trafficked are working on um, horse farms or agricultural farms in the state of Kentucky. Um, so if you are in a state that's an agricultural industry, look, look for those. You can kind of, that's where you need to start looking. Um, housemaids and nannies, again, is another one. Um, human trafficking, let's see. Yeah, human trafficking statistics, um, basically the, the number that's thrown out a lot is 27 million, is that there are 27 million people in the world in slavery today. That's more than at any point in our history. That's more people in slavery in the world today than were enslaved during the transatlantic slave trade. That's huge. Um, the International Labor Organization estimates that for every trafficking victim forced into prostitution, nine others are forced to work. So by and large, labor trafficking is the most prominent form of trafficking in the world. Oftentimes you see movies like Taken and things like that, and you understand sex trafficking, but we forget that component of labor trafficking. And that's here. It's, it's all over the world. It's here in your own backyard. But for every one girl in a brothel, nine others are forced to work. That's huge. Um, trafficking is a business. It's a huge money-making business. The TIP report said that $13,000 per year is generated on average by each laborer. Imagine if you're a trafficker and you had 15 people and each of them made at a minimum $13,000. That's huge. This is a huge business. Um, as many as 2.8 children live on the streets and basically, when you break that down, that's a big number to wrap your head around. If you are a teenager in America and you run away from home, your one out of three of you will be forced into prostitution within 48 hours. And that's huge. If you run away from home as a teenager in America, within 48 hours, one out of three of you will be approached by a trafficker. This tells you these people are smart. They know what they're doing. They know who to look for. And if you attended um, Dr. Barrow's uh, speech on domestic minor sex trafficking, he really went into that. But this just gives you an idea of how many people are here and how much of an opportunity we have as healthcare providers um, to intercept them and find them, hopefully before they're trafficked, but especially when they're trafficked. The problem we've had in the state of Kentucky is that all of our victims came to us after they were free. We've not been able to identify and locate victims who are currently being trafficked. And that's why um, we're hoping by educating healthcare providers, we can change our statistics, at least here in the state, and be able to identify them. Because as healthcare providers, you're a number one point of contact for a victim. And sometimes that surprises people. But if you think about it, you can take a drug and sell it one time, and then you have to go get another one. You can sell a person over and over and over. You don't ever have to go get another one unless they get sick or die. And if they get sick, it may be cheaper to go have them fixed 
and brought back than to get someone new. So as a healthcare provider, you more than likely will be the number one point of contact. They're afraid of law enforcement, even though law enforcement is a number one point of contact. Oftentimes, especially um, girls and, and immigrants who are brought in, they're afraid of law enforcement. So they're not so much afraid of you, I think. So hopefully um, you'll you'll be able to identify those. The average age for a girl in the United States into pornography and prostitution is 12, 12 years old. Um, so it shows us, you know, we don't need to just look for this in the adult population. We need to look for this in, in pediatrics and, and in the children that we see in our clinics as well. Um, just to give you an idea of what goes on in the state of Kentucky, we have 49 cases of trafficking that have been identified, and we've served 89. The difference in those numbers is we have a lot of victims who came to the state of Kentucky for services, but they weren't trafficked in our state. So we have 89 victims that we serve. Um, and when I say we, I, I don't mean not for sale, especially. It's rescue and restore. We are blessed that we have an amazing rescue and restore coordinator who works with our victims directly, directly helping them get TV says, U visas, a number of different types of assistance. And so this is by no means completely representative. This is just what's come across her desk. And we there's only a few people in the state who work on this. Um, surprisingly, um, we have 33% of the victims are U.S. citizens. And when you think of Kentucky, you don't really think of trafficking, especially um, of U.S. citizens. But 33% of our victims are U.S. citizens. Um, some of our numbers have switched from this time last year. We used to have a larger number of labor trafficking victims, and that's because here in the state we are an agricultural place. We have horse farms. We have um, agricultural farms. We're a big farming state, but our numbers have switched, and we actually have a little bit higher number of sex trafficking victims, and these numbers are current as of yesterday. So I was really excited to get those. Um, to give you an idea of the relationship of the trafficker to the victim, at least here in our state, it's not really that big of a surprise that 41% of the trafficking relationship was an employer. So it was somebody that they were working for um, in, in that area. Um, one was a husband or a boyfriend. So oftentimes in my, um, in my clinic that I work in, a lot of the victims are victims of domestic violence as well as victims of trafficking. So you oftentimes will see similar types of violence over overlap like that. I was able, she was a lot, she had no idea what trafficking was. That phrase meant nothing to her. But when she was explaining to me kind of the abuse that was occurring in her home from her husband, it was obvious that he was also trafficking her. So she was both domestic violence and, and trafficking. Um, the one that is interesting, we took our labor cases and we divided them up by industry. 22% of our labor trafficking cases in the state were in hotels. I was floored. I couldn't believe it. Um, I had a group of students who went out and blanketed the city with posters that had the um, 1-800 number on them, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And I was surprised that the places that would not let us put those posters up were gas stations. They had posters up for 1-800 numbers for domestic violence, for sexual assault, for a number of other kinds of violence. But when we asked to put these posters up, they said no. And then I got those statistics. 20, um, what was it, 17% of our labor trafficking cases were in area gas stations. Well, that kind of made sense then. Um, so there, a lot of these cases will occur in places you may not necessarily think. Um, so if you are in a state, um, what you can do is go to Rescue and Restore. Again, Google it. That's my friend. Google Rescue and Restore, and it'll tell you what state you're in. Um, well, you should know that, but it'll tell you. <laughs> that didn't come out right. 
slide, it'll tell you if you click on it who your Rescue and Restore coordinator is. And they should have these same statistics for your area that I've been able to get for ours. I get them through Rescue and Restore. If you don't have a Rescue and Restore in your state, chances are they may be doing your state as well. Some of the some of them overlap, I think. So call somebody in Rescue and Restore and ask how you can get these numbers because this is a really good way to figure out where trafficking is in, in your area. What what types of trafficking might you see in your clinic? Try and figure out what these are. They should have these numbers for you. So Rescue and Restore has them. Um, the trafficking side, I said it's, it's obviously a business. Um, surprisingly, it's the second most profitable crime in the world. That um, Statistics show that at the rate it's growing, it's the fastest growing, and by 2012, it should be the most profitable form of, of crime in the world, um, which is insane. And it averages about $32 billion a year. That's why this is underground. It's why these people work so hard to keep us from figuring out what's happening to these people because it's, it's about money. And obviously $32 billion a year, that's a lot of money. People get really um, interesting when you start talking money. The recruitment process, something um, that's common across the boards, especially here in Kentucky, they oftentimes, if they're coming in from another country or even um, from local areas, they think they're coming here to earn money to support their family. So a lot of them are promised a job. They're promised something specific that they're going to do. They get here, and then that doesn't happen. Um, there was a case in, in Louisville where um, some boys were brought to the area, and they were told that they were going to be male models. And when they got here, that's not at all what they were. Um, that case has been in the news just a little bit. There's um, not been anything done about it so far. The, there's still investigations going on. But they were boys who didn't have a strong family support. They didn't really have um, any friends. you know. So when they get here and they figure out that they've been tricked, who are they going to call? They really don't have anyone. So, they're, again, they're preying on people's vulnerabilities to get them here. Um, they think they're going to go to school. A number of them will say, you're going to work in the entertainment industry. I, we've had some clients who think they're going to come here and work in Hollywood. They're going to be an actress, a model, a singer. Um, again, it goes back to force fraud and coercion. They're, they come here thinking something completely different. Um, the recruitment tools, oftentimes, um, this is a picture from the TIP report that shows um, an ad for someone to come and work, and that's actually an ad that was used by a trafficker. So they look very similar to ads that you see just you know, uh, stapled on poles and things. They don't look, you know, it's, it's not going to look any different. They want it to look familiar to all the other job ads. They don't want it to stick out like that. And so oftentimes they use fake employment. Um, we've had a lot of mail order internet brides. That's been something that we've seen in the state that's interesting. Um, Craigslist has been huge. Craigslist was recently had their adult services section shut down, um, but a number of those ads have moved to others. One that I found is gawker.com. And um, I was on there, and I was trying to see, you know, what was coming through. We had the World Equestrian Games in our state a couple of um, months, or back in September and October, and we were interested to see if the World Equestrian Games would have a tie to the increase in trafficking. And we don't know yet. It's still too early to tell. Um, but I was it was interesting to see that on Gawker.com and on Craigslist, I would see ads that would say Asian, 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 um, and it would have the dates listed, that, and the dates coincided with the World Equestrian Games, and it would give you an exit number. So, like, I-75 exit 13 or something like that. 
And it was, you know, who does that? Or some of the ads were in third person. That's one thing you can look for if you're in those kind of ads. They're third person. You know, um, new girl in town. She is barely legal. She is this. She is that. If you're writing about yourself, chances are you're not going to write about yourself in third person. So there's, you know, a lot of these ads on Craigslist are not trafficking. They're not trafficking victims. A number of them are. I saw another one um, on Craigslist, and the the subject heading of it, all it said was barely legal. And then you clicked on it, and it gave you the hotel and the, the room that they were in and the dates and the times that they would be there. Um, you know, I was amazed. I took it. We have task force meetings in our state. Again, you can find those through Rescue and Restore. Um, Google, you know, I found our state task force by, no surprise, Googling. I Googled human trafficking in Kentucky and found somebody named um, Gretchen Hunt, who was an attorney, and she had wrote up the minutes for the trafficking task force. And I, I stalked her and found her, and I was like, how do, how do I get to come to this? And so I showed up, and they were like, you really did? I was like, yeah. And so I was kind of shocked at myself. Um, but yet, Google those things. It, it could be your best friend to find some of those. Um, your role as a healthcare provider. Um, back in 2008, some of the best and the brightest healthcare professionals got together and they had the National Healthcare Symposium. And there's a lot of other words that go in there to make it sound more professional and fancy, but I don't know what they are. Um, but they were talking about human trafficking and healthcare. That's all I cared about. And they stated in their executive summary that most of the victims were found in compulsory medical exams and medical emergencies. Um, I will, uh, there's a handout over here. There's two actually. Um, the yellow one are the statistics for the state of Kentucky. It gives you a breakdown of the um, the ones you saw on the screen as well as where we get our referrals. A number of our referrals have come from ERs. They've come from um, psych units. That's a big place. We've had a number of girls come in on an attempted suicide and they were held on a 72-hour hold in a psych ward and then it was discovered what was happening to them. So those are some places you can look. Um, there's a number of other places that will tell you where we get our referrals from. One, um, my, my kind of place where I work, a free and, re- we're not free, I wish we were, but we're a low-cost clinic. If you don't have insurance, we'll still see you for a cost of $25, which is very reasonable. Um, and so you'll see these people, they want them to, if they're not well, they're not making money, which is all the traffickers worried about. So oftentimes they will bring them into these places. Diagnostic testing facilities, um, I know of a case that was referred by a radiologist who noticed a number of broken bones and number of previous injuries, and he got suspicious. He started questioning her. She, she didn't come out and say, yes, I'm a trafficking victim, but he had seen um, a Lifetime movie. That's grand. You know, it worked. He got it. He watched a Lifetime movie, and he figured it out, and he's like, this is human trafficking, and he Googled, and you know, because of Google, he found, you know, the right person. And so he called him. He's like, what is, what do I do with her? And so they came and they talked to her and, you know, she got out. Um, and so, you know, these are different places, private offices. Oftentimes a trafficker will try and fix the health problem themselves or maybe have a buddy who says, well, hey, I can do an abortion, you know, and, you know, they try and do it themselves. And then when they mess it up is when they'll come in to, to some places to see you. So you, what you're going to see, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I'll stop for a second. Um, Social indicators. What does a victim look like? Um, These are based on a number of different resources. Rescue and Restore, the National Healthcare Symposium. Hey, there's that name. The National Healthcare Symposium on the Health Needs of Human Trafficking Victims, if you want to write all that down. Um, 
But the, what they're going to look like, frequently relocation. I was, um, I volunteer with a rape crisis center, and I go as a medical advocate. So when women are raped and they go to the hospital and I'm on call, I go. And I had a suspicious case a couple of weeks ago, and it was a girl. And what tipped me off, there were a number of things. What tipped me off, I asked her, I said, well, where are you from? And she said, well, um, I'm from... Ohio, I lived there for a couple of weeks, and I guess right now I'm from Kentucky because I've been here for about a month. And I was like, really? I was like, well, where were you that before that? Well, I lived in Florida. I was like, were you somewhere before Florida? Well, yeah, I, I lived in Texas for a, for a while. So if you ask them where they're from, they oftentimes are from many places, or maybe they don't really know. They're just from everywhere, or they're not going to give you an answer at all. Um, that That's, you know, something to be suspicious of. If somebody asks me where I'm from, it doesn't, you know, I know where I'm from. I'm from Paducah, Kentucky. And oftentimes these people really won't have that answer. Numerous inconsistencies. This girl had been beaten up. She had been stabbed, a number of things. And when she would, I would ask her, you know, what happened, she would tell me. I, would, I was there with her for eight hours. So later I asked her what happened. And that, again, a different story of how this happened. So there's inconsistencies in their stories. Um, neglected health care needs. She had a previous gunshot wound from a year ago that was never treated. And she was paralyzed from the knee down on one leg. Um, you know, why didn't you go to a doctor about that? You know, what happened? Um, you know, things like that. You're going to see a lot of unmet health care needs. Restricted or scripted communication, sometimes it may sound like the answer they're giving you is something they've memorized. Oftentimes the traffickers, especially with, with young girls, are told specifically what to tell you. And it's um, I've heard cases, there, there was a girl on Dateline who was trafficked, a domestic minor, and she was given a new name, a new, uh, new parent, knew everything, and she was to memorize this paragraph, and if anyone asked her any question, she was to recite that whole thing to them, and that was part of, of what he would do to her, is ask her over and over and over to recite this paragraph to him, so he could be sure that she knew what she was supposed to tell you. So it's a little obvious when someone's talking from notes, or if they're just talking you know, freely to you. That's a big indicator. Not necessarily, okay, that now she's a trafficking victim. Just a red flag. One of my favorite books when I was little was Madeline and there's in Madeline there was always that um, nun Mrs. Clavel I think and like Madeline was always in serious trouble but Mrs. Clavel would like wake up in the middle of the night and point her finger in the air and be like something's not right and she would run down the hall and sure enough something's not right and that's really as healthcare providers what we need you guys to know. Know these kind of things. Have that Mrs. Clavel instinct that something's not right and we know you have tons of patients to treat and not a lot of time but if you have that same red flag in the back of your head for trafficking that you already have for domestic violence, rape, child abuse, you'll be able to think something's not right, and then in a few minutes I'll tell you what you do then if something's not right. But these are all indicators um, of Mrs. Clavel, something's not right with this person. Um, excessive amounts of cash. These are oftentimes, you'll see this, especially with domestic minors. This same girl, um, she was emptying her pockets because she was changing into the hospital gown. And she had, like, tons of ones and fives and tens. I mean, she had huge amounts of cash. And, you know, she's young. She was, like, 22. I was like, how did you get this cash? I don't know. You know, and then she pulled out of her back pocket, and she had four hotel room keys. I don't even, how do you stay in four places at once? You know, I was, I don't know how to do that. You know, how do they get those? 
Um, signs of branding, I have not seen this, but I've had a number of physicians tell me after speaking with them that the girls may have some kind of a mark on them. One physician, not in Kentucky, in another state, says that he's seen several girls with the same mark, either tattooed or it's like branding. It's not necessarily a tattoo. It's a scar that forms after they're branded, and it's the same one. And apparently that's a, a area that's a gang area, and the pimps are very um, territorial of their girls, so they will all brand them with the same, so that one can't take the other ones. And so I've, I've heard that that is becoming another indicator something's not right. Lying about their age. If they're 14, and they're telling you they're 18, and they look 14, if it looks like a duck probably a duck. If she says that she's 18, she looks 12, she's probably 12. Um, oftentimes, again, that restricted communication. They, um, The presence of an overly controlling, abusive boyfriend, this one's huge. Before I worked in this clinic, I worked in a neurology clinic, and I'll never forget, I had a, a girl that came in, and she, girl, she was old enough to be my mom. She's not old, but she's, you know, older than me. She's not a girl. And she was from Russia, and she had a woman with her, which oftentimes you think of a trafficker as being a male. And she had a woman with her. And so I brought her back, and I, you know, I got her weight, got her height, did all that stuff, got her blood pressure. And I was asking her a question, and I said, can you tell me what medications you take? And the woman put her hand over, and she said, she takes this, 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 and this. Okay. Um, I said, well, can you tell me why you're here today? She's here because she had a seizure. Okay. Well, this girl was never allowed to speak, and I asked the lady, I said, well, would it be okay with you if she answered some of the questions? Because I, I, that's kind of what our clinic requires is that I have to, she has to answer for herself. Well, she can't answer you because she speaks Russian, and, and I have to be here with her because she's married to my son, and I have to be able to tell him what, what you guys are saying when you're done. So I have to be in here the whole time. You know, and every time she would come in, this lady would come in with her. Well, a couple of days after I saw her in the clinic, I got a phone call for a med refill, and it was that girl. She spoke fluent English. She understood exactly what I was telling her. But she, you know, every time she would come into the clinic, that woman would be with her. And, you know, it... It kills me every day. I didn't know about trafficking then. I didn't know what to do. And I just thought it was odd, and so I didn't do anything. And I still wonder to this day, you know, where is she and what's happening to her? Because she's, she was from Russia, and she was married, um, apparently, to this man. But she was never allowed to come into our clinic alone. The only time you could talk with her was on the phone. But when she was in the clinic, she didn't speak English. I have to talk for her. Um, so we'll talk about what you should do in those situations, but those are huge indicators. Um, I mentioned this. When, when they come in, they're going to have unusual infections. Um, Dr. Welch did a great presentation yesterday on the health consequences, things you might look for. Um, look for things in a late presentation. It might not be a cough and cold. It may already be pneumonia. So you're going to see a number of things that are festering, that are, are waiting until, until the very last minute because it's like, why didn't you come in last week? You know, those, those kind of things. These are not your perfect patients. Um, at least, you know, when I get a patient, I like them to have health insurance. I like them to be polite and appreciate my hard work. I'm here to save the day. Appreciate it. You know, like, I want them to, to be that way. It makes me happy. It makes my day happy. These are not people who are going to make your day happy. In fact, it can be quite the opposite. They're going to lie to you. They're not going to take care of themselves. They're not going to get their prescriptions refilled. They're not going to do follow-up appointments. So they're going to miss a lot of those things. She was talking about vaccines. I had some children in my office. Their mom's a dancer. And um, I feel she's being trafficked. But this, this little girl was four years old, had never had a vaccine. You know, and when I was figuring, why has she, why has she not been vaccinated? Well, I'm, we, we move around a lot, and I just haven't had time to do it. 
Well, all children in the state of Kentucky get health insurance. There's she, there's no reason this child should not have health insurance to get these vaccines. So, you know, again, indicators, they're not getting regular health checkups. Um, these are some, I won't spend a lot of time on these, but um, one of You'll see oftentimes I've had people come up and tell me, Brittany, these look just like a domestic violence victim. How do you tell the difference? Um, one of the ways that you can tell a difference is oftentimes with domestic violence, it's one perpetrator. It's one person who's beating that person or raping them or, or doing whatever. With human trafficking, there's oftentimes multiple perpetrators. So if, you're, if you've gained that person's trust and if you talk to them, you can kind of find out which one it is or maybe it's both. Um, a number of women, especially, who come in, at least that I've seen, I can only speak for what I've seen, um, are num- are, or it's both. Again, if you look, if you remember this slide, a, a huge number of trafficking of traffickers were related to the victim as spouse or boyfriend. So they can qualify as both. So it is really hard, but as just keep in mind kind of as a healthcare provider, you really don't have to figure out which one it is. You just have to think this might be trafficking, and here's what I do next. And that's um, where we'll go. Um, understanding the mindset, we've talked about that. A lot of times these people don't know what's happening to them is a crime. They have no idea. A lot of them think it's their fault. They think they came over here illegally, so, you know, I've done something wrong. A lot of them, um, huge guilt, huge shame issues that keep them from talking. Um, again, they, they're watched or escorted or guarded um, a number of times. You'll, you'll see that. They're never really alone. Um, if they are alone, their chances are there's somebody else in the background watching them. They may not be right next to them. Um, I've, I've gone out on the streets in Lexington and, and done some work, some street outreach with some girls that work on the street. And oftentimes I'll try and give them something, and they'll tell me, you know, I'm not by myself. He's in that car way over there, you know. And so oftentimes, even if they look physically alone, they're not. Um, they're often kept isolated. One of the questions that I asked this girl who came in that I was assist, um, I was her advocate. She had been raped. What had happened to her is she had gone to a party, and she woke up eight days later. And when she woke up, she didn't have any clothes on, and she was tied to a bed in a hotel in Lexington. And she had no idea. She thought she had been missing for about three days, but she had been missing for eight days. There had been a missing persons report out on her. And I was amazed because none of the – she was also on cocaine. So when she went to the to the emergency room, all of the doctors and all of the nurses instantly judged her because she, she tested positive for cocaine. And I'll never forget, she had gone to the bathroom outside, and um, some of the nurses were talking about her, and she came around the corner and heard it. And she went back in the room, and she's like, you know, they're, they're going to arrest me. So it, she didn't really talk much after that because she heard what they were saying. And so um, she, you know, I don't know if she was trafficked. I highly suspect she was. But I couldn't get law enforcement, and I couldn't get anyone to listen to me. And so I did the best I could, gave her some information, and hoped that she followed through with it. But there Again, you have to remember their mindset, what they're coming from. One of the things I do with nursing students when I train them is I have them get up. I won't do this to you because um, we're at a Christian conference, but I have them get together in partners, and I have them, you know, volunteer before they know what they're doing, who's going to be the talker and who's going to be the listener. And they, they're they like, well, what am I going to talk about? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you later. And so um, that's always a trick with me, don't volunteer. Um, so they raise their hand. They're like, I'll be the talker. And I have them turn to each other. I'm like, okay, talker, you need to 
tell this person your best sexual experience? And they just look at me kind of like you're looking at me. And they're like, what? And I'm like, okay, imagine that you're a, you're a trafficking victim. Somebody's asking you not to talk about your best sexual experience to one person, but to tell them the worst thing that's ever happened to you, not just to the nurse, but to the doctor. And then you're going to have these exams. Then you're going to have law enforcement. You're going to have you're going to go through this ten times, and that's just in one night. Then you're going to have an advocate and a social worker, and then you're going to have a court system. A number of these people. That's why they don't report. I mean, can you imagine? I asked, you know, didn't really ask you, but you were going to get to talk about your best sexual experience. We're asking them to talk about the worst possible thing that could happen to them. And so the nursing students, they kind of like slump in their chairs like, okay, I get it. Don't do that to me again. I'm like, okay, you know, we're almost done here. You know, so again, understand that mindset. These are not your perfect patients. These are not the people who are going to come in that you're going to have this wonderful day with. When I get victims who come into my office and I suspect trafficking, I leave in the fetal position. I'm like, dang it. You know, like it's so hard because there's so little you can do. Um, um, if I'm in the fetal position, you know, I'm like, I could have done my job. Um, this is a technique that I tell people to remember. This is the meat. This is what you want to know. If you've identified them, what do you do? Um, I always say ice. You want to isolate the victim. Again, if that if they have someone with them, they're not going to be truthful to you. So remember ice. Isolate that victim before you ask them any questions. I've gone in before to the nurse practitioner because they couldn't figure out how to isolate them. I'm like, I need to take you for a urine sample. Well, I'm not even a clinical. Like, I legally can't do that, but they don't know that. And I'm really not doing it, so I'm not breaking the law. But I'm like, okay, we're going to go for a urine sample. Or, you know, they can't go to the bathroom with them. Or make something up. Blame it on your hospital policy. I'm sorry, but I'm really poor, and I'll lose my job if I don't do this. So I have to. Sorry, back off. Chances are they will. You know, just figure out, make something up. You know, I'm not telling you to really go do the x-ray unless the doctor orders it. I'm telling you to make something up to get them away. So isolate that victim however you can. See confidentiality. I told you the story of that girl who was coming around the corner and heard what they thought of her. You have to be confidential. There's been other cases reported where they have isolated the victim and the trafficker was waiting out in the hallway and the nurses were talking about the case in a good way that maybe this is a trafficking victim. Well, he heard that, took the girl, and ran. So you have to be careful. You, you, can't, you have to be careful. I cannot stress that enough. Confidentiality is paramount. So isolate the victim. Confidentiality. Enlist an interpreter. Do not use an interpreter who is with that victim. I don't care what you have to do. If you have to play charades, if you have to draw pictures, use an interpreter. In most hospitals in Kentucky, we have a language line. We have access to interpreters. Use them. Call Rescue and Restore. Wake somebody up in the middle of the night. Do Use a third-party interpreter. It's imperative that you know your resources beforehand. Go out, Google, it's my favorite thing, interpreters, Lexington, Kentucky, interpreters, Waukesha, Wisconsin, wherever you are, and figure out who you can call or what your policy or what your clinic or what your hospital does for that and know beforehand because oftentimes you may be able to identify a victim, but if you don't have an interpreter, you're not going to get any answer that's going to lead you to any success or have any chance of freeing that victim. Um, Oh, I kind of did those three. Right. Um, communicating with them. What kind of questions do you ask them? Well, I had a student one time who or I was I was at a hospital and I was on a rape call and there was somebody else on another rape call and she didn't remember me, which was which was grand because I had trained her. And so she went in and she's like, Are you a victim of trafficking? 
dang it. You know, you don't ask that because they don't know that question. And so one of the things you can ask them, where do you work? Where do you sleep? Um, is anyone threatening you? Can you leave your job if you want to? All of these questions, again, can be found on Rescue and Restore. Even if you don't have a state coalition, you can go to Rescue and Restore and download a fact sheet. Also at Rescue and Restore, their materials are free. They have um, these little pocket cards. Doctors at War also has them downstairs that you can put in your coat pocket. So if you want to ask questions and you like have a brain freeze and you forget what you're supposed to say, you can pull that out and look at it. What I've told nursing students to do is put it on a mailing label and put it on the back of their name tag because you always have to carry that around. And that way you can just flip it up and look at it. Um, one of the things I'm working on is putting reminders and charts. I've developed some assessment tools that are going to come out hopefully. And they're little um, chart like, I don't know what the technical name is. I'm still trying to come up with it. But there are little things you put in your chart. They're assessment tools. Right now, the assessment tool is like 15 pages. So I took it and condensed it down to one page. And it's just a couple of these questions. And that's all you need to do is ask these couple of questions. And then if you identify a victim, um, what you need to do right here. Over here on this sheet, I have developed a decision tree. From the moment the patient walks in the clinic to the moment that you can leave the room, what you should do step by step. Um, in the state of Kentucky, we have human trafficking advocates in our rape crisis center. I didn't know about those people. They're freaking amazing. If you're a health care provider, you're in the hospital, you have a rape vic- or a trafficking victim, call the rape crisis center. They'll send an advocate out who's trained in trafficking, who who can help the police not arrest them, but see them as someone different, who's there to support that victim. If your rape crisis center doesn't have those, go talk to the rape crisis center. They may be willing to send out, I'm a volunteer for them. They may be willing to train their volunteers so that their volunteers will respond to trafficking calls just like they respond to rape calls. If you don't have these resources, Figure out who the agency are in your area that treats similar types of violence. The domestic violence centers in Kentucky oftentimes give us housing. That's amazing. Um, we, it's, it's just a number of people who come together. So check out Rescue and Restore. If you can't find them, go wake people up to what's going on. Say, I'm a nurse. I need to know. Can you help me? Can I call you? Make up your own protocol. It's kind of what I'm doing here. Um, if you have a victim who's over the 18, over age 18, you need to obtain permission to interview or to intervene. Part of the recovery for these people is getting their power back. There are not laws that require you to report trafficking unless it's a minor, and then that's child abuse. If they don't want help, you can't help them. That's hard. But what you want to do is get permission to talk to them. Gain their trust. Don't don't be somebody else who, who takes away their power. If their power is to stay in that situation, then maybe what's best for them right now is to stay. And maybe they can leave later. One of the things you can do is refer to police. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's not. It's why I always love to call a rape crisis center and say, can you give me an advocate for this person? Once the advocate gets there, then you can call police. Um, suicide risk. That's a great way to keep someone in the hospital. If you ha- think that they're... Um, any harm or danger to themselves or other, a slight consult instantly, and they can be kept. Call hospital social work. Call a social worker. Call the cabinet. There's a number of resources on this decision tree. I've called them HT, Human Trafficking Assisting Agencies. Figure out who those are. If you don't have them, go to those agencies yourself and say, here's the problem. 
what can we do together to work on this? It's kind of how the, the protocol in the state of Kentucky came about, is that we went to the rape crisis. A professor wrote an article on human trafficking in Kentucky. Health and Human Services gave us money and put human trafficking advocates in the majority of our rape crisis centers. It's amazing what can happen if you're the one who takes the initiative and goes out and says, what do I do? So what do you do? Um, you remember the different things. You remember ICE. You isolate the victim. You... Remember confidentiality, you enlist an interpreter, and then you go get someone else to help because you have other patients to treat. So you go with hospital social work, call rape crisis, call domestic violence. Do your research beforehand. Um, one quick thing I'll tell you that Not For Sale has coming out. I got so excited. I screamed. I'm in a host family, and I guess I woke them up last night when I screamed about this because it made me really happy. Um, we have something at Not For Sale called Free to Work, and it's a database full of companies that are graded on the issue of trafficking. So let's say you're buying Hershey's chocolate, which we all know is bad, so let's use something else. Let's say you're buying um, a pair of tennis shoes, and you want to know if child labor is involved in making that, go to freetowork.org, type it in, up will come the grade. That's great, but what's so cool is Apple on Monday has given us an iPhone app, so if you're shopping and you want to know if something's fair trade, turn the app on, scan the barcode with your phone, how cool, scan the barcode, and up will come the grade of that product, and it'll also tell you why they get that grade. These grades come um, from the International Labor Rights Forum, so they're not just somebody that's gone out and said, hey, I think you, you, know, you don't do a good job. So you can download that app on Monday. It's called Free to Work. Um, remember, the two is the number and not T.O., um, but I think we're, we're out of time, but I've got these handouts up here. Again, they're the statistics for Kentucky and a decision tree. If you have questions, um, I'll hang out up here.